I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll... Just take the gyroscopes. Hi, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 66 on Lord Dunsany's The Charwoman Shadow. I'm Jeff, and with me today is His Excellency Hoy. Actually, I prefer your mystery. Oh, yes, I'm sorry, your mystery. <laughs> uh, and also today we have Shauna Germain, co-author, editor, and writer at Monty Cook Games, writer for Invisible Sun, co-author of Consent in Gaming and No Thank You Evil, and the author of Love and Sex in the Ninth World, amongst many other books. Shauna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Hello. It's great to have you here. We're on time travel day as we're recording this, I just realized. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Even worse. And I had also fully forgotten about that as well. So when I woke up this morning, I was like, I slept until 10.30 a.m.? I never sleep this late. And I was like, oh, no, okay. This makes more sense. Right. It's got to go. Daylight's got to go. It's got to go. It's the worst. It's the worst. I hate it so much. Uh, but anyway, so Shauna, we're going to go ahead and ask you some of those uh, cliche podcast <laughs> introduction questions. So starting with, how did you get into gaming? <laughs> uh, my first game, well, my family's a big into games, but my first RPG uh, experience was I had a babysitter. I was, I think, I think I was about five. So this would have been like 1977, 1978. And uh, she brought over uh, Bunnies and Burrows. Whoa, and cool. <laughs> I, of course, didn't have any idea that this was different than any other game that I had ever played, except that I got to run around and be a bunny and uh, do bunny foo. And I think that my babysitter probably really regretted that <laughs> after about 10 <laughs> minutes. But I thought it was awesome. I was a huge, like, you know, rabbit fan. We had rabbits. I grew up on a farm. And so uh, that was my first very young introduction to uh, the joy of RPGs. <laughs> That's really cool. Have you ever met Dennis Sester? I have not. I have not. Hmm. If you don't mind, I actually have a very fantastic Dennis Hester story. I would well, love I would to share love for a quick sec. So I was I've only went I've only gone to North North Texas RPG Con once, but the time that I went, I got to play in a session of Bunnies and Burrows run by Dennis Hester, uh, the author of Bunnies and Burrows. And one of the, t- the players at our table was blind, and he knew that player was going to be there. I had played with him before, so he had created this this um, map. That the, that the blind person at the table could use for the table that was all textured. So, like, you could he could feel where the river was and where the hills were. And he was, like, our guide for the episode and would That's tell us, so like, where cool. to go next. It was incredible. Wow. And and the player had no idea that Dennis was doing this. And you could tell he was incredibly moved by oh, this. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. What a great right. experience. Yeah. It's always good to hear when one of the, the, the grandpas turns out to be a good guy as opposed I to agree. some other more disappointing story. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. I agree. That's far too rare, but boy, when it happens, it's really wonderful. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Um, and also, a lot of people don't know that, but he's also the one who wrote the Druid class. He's the right. reason why the Druid class um, became I a part of D&D. I know that. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. There you go. From Bunnies and Burrows, I mean, you were quite young. When did you become aware of 
role playing as a more concrete thing, distinct from like board games and you know it was make boy. Yeah, it was quite a while. Um, when I was in high school, we didn't have a. This is sort of a long winded version, but we didn't have a girls soccer team, so I had to try out and play on the boys soccer team. This is how old I am, <laughs> and, um, and as part of that, all of the boys that I played with on the soccer team went out into the woods on the weekends and played D and D. And so that was my first experience was like running around with a bunch of sticks, like, you know, playing this weird, it was much more LARPing than it was right. at the table D and D at the time. And I thought like, I did think that you could only play it outside <laughs> and I didn't want to be the, the dungeon master because the dungeon master had to sit at the table while the rest of us ran around with sticks. <laughs> Which probably was a lot more about me than anything else. Um, and then, and, and so that was like sort of my return, but like, at that time, I don't think I even equated that they were the same kind of game, right? It was just like D&D was just this own kind of thing. And um, it probably wasn't until someone was asking me, like, what was your first RPG that I actually even remembered that I had sort of had this Bunnies and Burrows experience and it was in the same category. So it was a really long time. I mean, I was in high school in the late 80s. So, mm. you know, it was like 15 years, 10 wow, years. Sure. Now, what level of familiarity do you have with the term Appendix N? I have a lot now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I had none. I didn't even know what it was actually until I, I listened to a couple of your podcasts because I was like, I'm not, I, I, this sounds awesome. I'm really interested. And I realized that the name had some significance that I did not know. <laughs> and I had better go and look it up before I came in and chatted. And the funny thing is, 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 you know, my partner, Monty Cook was like, how many, like, you didn't know what Appendix X was? And I was like, no, I didn't. And he's like, well, have you read any of these books? And I was like, I have read very few of these books. Yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting that, like, I consider myself to be very steeped in in modern uh, fantasy. And there's a, like, I was much more of a, a horror and a sci-fi reader when I was younger mm-hmm. uh, than I was a fantasy reader. Similarly, you know, I when I came into this project, I had read very little Appendix and myself and was also mostly a horror and sci-fi fan as well. I always thought fantasy literature when I was a kid was somehow just like a little too, like, I don't know, Mary Sue or something like it. I don't know. Like, I, I loved playing Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't really have much interest in reading, uh, reading the books. I don't know. But um I've had a lot of fun exploring this stuff uh, for the the good stuff and the bad stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Now, how much now? Once you took a look at it, what were some of the things that you had read previously? You know, I honestly, it's so little that it's a little bit. It's a little bit sort of like I should sit down and read all of these books um, <laughs> because the thing that I realized was that, so the first real fantasy book that I can remember reading was Swords of Shannara. And the reason okay. for that was because it had my name on the cover. My middle name is Ray, R-A-E. And so it was like my name, but missing the, the end of my middle, the last letter of my middle name. And I was like, that's me. That's, that's, that's a cool. book that has my name on it. And right. so, which is interesting because I was named after like this really horrible romance book that came out really a long time ago called Shauna. And I think, I'm, I think it's actually called Shanna. So my name is mispronounced from the book that it was taken from. So that's all history of like, of, of sort of picking up books that have my name on it. So that was like the first one that I remember reading. And the reason was because it had some connection to me. Right. And also it had a woman on the cover and I think that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I think that I, you know, obviously I've read some of the Tolkien. I hadn't read any Lord uh, Dunsany at all. Um, and so like there was, you know, looking through that list, there's just very, very little that I have read. And part mm-hmm. of it is that I, you know, high school, I took this AP Shakespeare class and then I took this AP classical lit class or something, which are like the advanced program things. And I decided that I hated classical books. Like mm-hmm. I just couldn't stand to walk through sort of um, 
the traditional stories that they were telling about like super upper class white men sort of, you know, having these experiences that seemed very much the same. And that kind of probably ruined me for reading in fantasy, like older fantasy and sci-fi stuff that I hadn't already read. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, of course, we picked the one book that's actually written by an actual noble for you to read. <laughs> <laughs> I did discover his full real name though, which is really amazing. It's like twenty names all tucked right. into one. It is gorgeous, and I love it. Right. Well, and we also discover that our protagonist's name in this book is Ramon Alonso Matthew Mark Luke John of the Tower in Rocky Forest. <laughs> that is his full proper name. Right. <laughs> I, know. I loved that so much. He's okay. just taking away from that now. I know. <laughs> So let's go ahead and uh, briefly chat about which edition of the book we are working with. This is the cover that I have on mine. Uh, I've got the 1976 Del Rey edition, and it's got this Michael Herring cover here. And on the cover, we see we've got Ramon Alonso and his shadow is flying above him. And there is the the beautiful shadow of the uh, of the maiden anemone sitting on a box and then the wizard just kind of uh, in the background looking all ominous Uh, which edition of the book are you guys working with well i have to say this book was incredibly hard to find like unbelievably hard to find and so i actually borrowed it from the internet archive which i is a site that i have not looked at since i was probably i don't know (laughs) 30 (laughs) maybe even so like i it was the only place i could find it and and actually borrow it and so the version that i have is the ballantine books version it looks like it was in 1973 under their adult fantasy imprint it's got that introduction by lynn carter um and the cover was is sort of amazing because it's got dragons (laughs) and Uh he's walking through this castle following footprints made of flowers which (laughs) <laughs> makes absolutely no sense with the fantastic story and like but it's a great cover and i love it and let me see right. i think i have the artist inside right. it's um i'm gonna mispronounce this person's name garbasio gallardo or gallardo mm-hmm. I'm not yeah sure. he did a lot um, and of it's it. just this beautiful piece but it's certainly like i feel like it, it has nothing to do with the interior right. story at all. Right, right. it really and doesn't it, doesn't the guy look like he's wearing like a modern suit or something yeah, like that he totally does he's like a gumshoe like right. <laughs> following footprints it's really right, kind right, of amazing right, right. <laughs> and hoy how about you I have the 1999 Del Rey uh, trade paperback reprint, which has this weirdo sort of like Photoshop cover of like a pair of hands and some flames <laughs> and a shadow in there. I don't even know what it is. I don't know if it's like high fantasy, bad romance. I don't know what kind of cover it is. But, uh, you know, it was I think it is still theoretically in print. But as you say, it's pretty hard to find in the bookstore. Yeah, I found like when I started searching, it was like $400 first edition. I'm like, no, I, don't, I just need to be able to read it, please. <laughs> <laughs> And now we'll take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Charwoman. Okay, I cheated. It's charwoman. So, uh, <laughs> so charwoman means a woman employed to clean houses or offices. And I guess part of the reason I wanted to use charwoman as our Hygaxian word of the day is that it's it's a cool word that first off I, I had never heard before, and I had to look up to see what it was when I when I was first exposed to the word. Also, I could very easily see this name showing up on some kind of like a random um, occupations chart, although it would be like a gendered <laughs> a gendered right. occupation. Uh, but also, I really liked that at the very end of the book, it says, 
And in their loyal avoidance to any reference to Anemone's occupation, the Spanish people let drop into disuse the very name of charwoman, lest they inadvertently should ever apply it to um, to where it was treason to do so. Hmm. So I also thought it was cool that even the author kind of um, acknowledges <laughs> that the word has fallen into disuse. Right, right. I wonder, I don't know enough about Spanish to wonder if that's Dunsany actually being accurate in the sense of um, a usage that had fallen out, because I know that... Um, you know, up until I was just reading the, the use of the word charwoman, it was actually listed as an occupation on the U.S. Census until like the early 1960s. And oh. it's since been replaced by like cleaning woman or cleaner or, or stuff like that as a more generalized occupation. Um, and the specific difference between a charwoman and a maid is a maid is usually live in, whereas a charwoman is sort of like uh, outsourced. So, huh. Interesting. Yeah. I also had to look it up. Um, and it made me think, uh, because this is such a fairy tale story, I, of course, thought of Cinderella, Cinderella right? Which mm-hmm. comes from cinders, which is similar to Char. And so it, it, it made this sort of beautiful round about in my head once I learned the meaning of it. And then I was like, well, of course, that's what it means. It makes so much sense. But I, I also didn't know. I had never heard the word. <laughs> and did you have any kind of a word you wanted to showcase? You know, I didn't. I I didn't uh, do that. But I, uh, when we get talking about it, I have all these phrases that I want to showcase. Because holy cow, Perfect. this guy is the master of phrases. Mm-hmm. Well, let with, with that, let's go on into the library. Uh, so, Shauna, talking about some of these beautiful phrases, what are some ones that you would like to highlight for us? Oh my gosh! I so. It's so funny because I was talking about this on Twitter and I said, hey, I'm reading this book that I've never read by this author I've never read uh, for this thing that I don't know if I can talk about yet. (laughs) 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 Um, And Kat Rambo, who's a fantastic writer, replied and she was like, you are going to love his turns of phrase. Like He's such a poet. You are in for a treat. And I was like, "Okay, great. Um, And it turns out that that she was absolutely true. I mean, and even right out of the gate, he's got like right in the early pages, there's this line about like, um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, the joy of the internet. Um, okay, so he says, and beyond that lay the wild rocks and the frown of the forest. And I'm just in love with the frown of the forest so much. Like I just kept reading that line over and over. And I was like, all right, I'm never going to finish this book if I read it like this. Because, <laughs> um, and then he's got some other things. Like he's got some, so he's got all this poetry, but then he also has these lines like, where he just takes this human truth and he kind of socks you right in the face with it. Like there's one thing that he says something like, um, he looked to see her face where all human acts are recorded. And I was just like, this is a person who spends a lot of time thinking about human psychology, thinking about how other people act in the world, how to read people. And I was, I was just kind of blown away. Like, and it's tucked, (laughs) these phrases are tucked between like really long passages of dialogue. So it's like you get through these long passages of dialogue and then you get this lovely treat at the end of it for doing the work. That's kind of how I was thinking it as I was going. (laughs) I mean, you are a poet too. What did, does that bring some extra resonance to this book for this book to you? You know, absolutely. Like the way in which words are used in unique and interesting ways is something that I, I read for very much for language and ideas and characters. And so in a lot of ways, this book was sort of right up my alley because it's got all these crazy ideas. It's got all this beautiful language. It's got these kind of interesting characters. The story really is not sort of negligible to all the rest of that. And so in a lot of ways I was like, okay, this is, this is something that I can really get behind. And, and I really wished that I had a paper copy, honestly, because I wanted to mark all of these places and, and reading the digital copy that I borrowed. Uh, I could not do that. <laughs> I might have to see if I can find a, a used copy somewhere. Right. Right. 
Well, surely there's, uh, you know, I guess uh, you're out in the West, uh, Powell's or somebody must have like a, a decent copy, a, read, a good I'm reading sure. copy. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Jeff? What, what jumped out at you? Yeah, actually, I really, I, I, I agree. I, I love the way he writes. I thought it was really also pretty cool how he would work in kind of his observations about the way the world is changing and also just kind of about human greed. You know, at one point he's talking about how as sin increases, so does the need for gold. And then when 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 um, when Alonzo um, Ramon Alonzo learns how to write, he then says something along the lines of like, and now the written word is used to um, spread more evil than anything else. Um, I forget exactly <laughs> the way he says it. And, Fake news. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and but then there was the one part that I really really loved. It was um, where is that? Hold on. Page 102 in my version, he says, No doubt he exaggerated a shadow's worthlessness, and yet the folk of that village that had turned out sword in hand had by their action exaggerated the other side of the argument, and extremes are made by extremes. There you go. Very yeah. cool, very insightful stuff about the, the human experience. Right, right. And it's funny to think about, and maybe this is just our modern stereotype because we don't have an aristocracy. We don't have a literal aristocracy in this country. We may have a de facto aristocracy, <laughs> but, um, but we tend to think of aristocrats as being sort of uh, removed, uh, uh, not in touch with sort of the, the human life as it is lived. Um, but Dunsany's acuity, psychological acuity, as you were saying, really shines through and his, his way of, you know, his, his, uh, carefulness of observation, even in the service of very poetic and fantastical situations, is, is I think very unusual. Yeah, and Shauna, I'm not sure if you're aware of this either, but also Dunsany, he wrote all of the all of his stories in a single draft with quill on paper. Jesus, that's <laughs> this just blows me away. <laughs> I don't know that I have the constitution for that. Like, I don't know if I'd be a writer if I had to do that. Like, right, right. That's amazing. I mean, I have so probably... much respect. There's probably a hidden story about I think his wife was the one who who was would type up all his manuscripts. So there's probably a hidden story about her being a great editor somewhere in there. Also. Probably, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean this is uh, this is a lot of fun and this is our second Dunsany book uh, officially for this project and we had started with The King of Elfland's Daughter which is probably his most well-known work. Um so what were what were the things sort of the the both the continuity and the changes, Jeff, that you saw between these two books, um, you know, those things that stood out. Sure. I mean, I know that King of Elfland's Daughter is the more famous of the pieces. I actually much preferred this one. I thought it was, um, I thought the story was more relatable. I thought that um, the characters were a lot more interesting. I don't know. I, I really kind of liked how everybody kind of had their own scheme going on. Like, <laughs> sure, we've got this magician here who, like, on the surface is, like, you know, quite... Uh, does some pretty some pretty awful stuff, you know. Like he's got the charwoman's shadow, and he just like has it dance for hours just to like uh, make her exhausted if she's not cleaning enough. So he's clearly like a bit of a villainous figure, but he's also written very much in a way where, as the reader, you also understand that like his desires are not our desires. He's not motivated by money. He's not motivated by love. Uh, he is motivated by you know spending decades and centuries locked away in his tower studying arcane secrets so that he can travel across space and time and become like a duke in hell. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, that that I thought was really cool. Um, were there any of the characters who really spoke to either of you? Uh, you know, I feel like I feel like they all did in interesting ways, and I think it. I found it really interesting the relationship between Ramon Alonso and his sister in particular because she's like this super secretive, like got all this scheming, and like for me, there were points where I couldn't tell. Like, is she giving this? Is she really giving this little push into the Duke on purpose? Is it? Is she not? Like, and I couldn't. Even I, as the reader, couldn't tell what she had going on half the time. Whereas Ramon Alonso is so out front with everything. He's like, he's like, here's my plan. Yeah. I'm gonna tell you my plan. I'm gonna do my plan. Like, right. even when he gets to like sort of push comes to shove with with the magician, with the wizard, he's like. Just give me my shadow, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> I mean, he can't even keep a secret, really, for the life of him. And then, and and yet, he's got this really like, and yet the two like the two siblings clearly like care for each other, right? And right. have all this other stuff going on. And I thought that the, I think for me that it was the intersection between the characters that I found most interesting, mm-hmm. um, because like the charwoman is is I mean she's totally like straight up fairy tale damsel in distress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Yet at the same time, she's like so resigned to the sadness of her life and so like, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you'll never get it. Oh, that I found her kind of like, I was just like, please get up and do something. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a very modern readers. Yes. Kind of, but it's, but even though it's it's about her shadow and it, she's the titular character, she doesn't have a lot of autonomy. She doesn't take a lot of action. She's very passive. Yeah. And so I, for me, that was the relationship like between the characters that I found maybe more interesting than the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that um, both Ramon and the charwoman, who we later find out her name is Anemone, uh, at least as a girl, were sort of initially driven by just sort of an unthinking obedience to their families and their roles in life. Whereas Mirandola is really the one who is not. <laughs> Mirandola is p- completely the opposite, right? She's betrothed to this guy, who's also an aristocrat, but everyone considers like, well, it's just purely a marriage of, of wealth and convenience because this guy's literally described as being gross in the sort of <laughs> older sense of the word, but gross, crude, <laughs> you know. He's he's clearly quite common, even though he's an aristocrat, right? Uh, and she's the one who's got all this stuff going on under, like, you know, under the under the hood that, you know, maybe the other, you know, as you say, Ramon is completely out front. And Mirandola is completely, you know, she's an iceberg, you know, and you only see a tenth of what's going on with her. Um and in, in many ways, she's the most mysterious, other than the magician himself, uh, in terms of in terms of the characters. Yeah. But the other character I think is quite interesting is is father is it Father Joseph, um, mm. um, who is also kind of interesting because he's quite wise. But um, as one of the um, the guests in our sort of virtual book club before was saying, he also exemplifies the attitude of. The Catholic Church for many centuries, which that is knowledge is a dangerous thing and should therefore be restricted to just the you know just the, the priesthood. And there's literally a chapter in here titled um, "Father Joseph." Uh, Father Joseph explains how the laity have no need of the pen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> chapter titles alone are sort of jealous making, right? Right. right. Oh, Ramon Alonso learns a mystery known to the reader is like my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> like, breaking every single possible wall there. Like right. <laughs> you're right on the page, it's amazing. And right. then I was like, do I know this mystery? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> There's also uh, a really funny moment too, where he does that, where Ramon Alonso has traded in his shadow to learn the. Um, no, no, he's given half of his his eyesight so that he can learn how to read, 
And then, you know, Dunsany is waxing poetic about the the wonders of the gift of being able to read. And then at one point he's like, you know what? I don't think I need to discuss this any further. As readers of this book, you probably understand how wonderful it is. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> now, Shauna, have you read much Lovecraft? I, I did go through a Lovecraft phase where I read quite a bit of Lovecraft. Um, and yeah, it, it's been a while. Unfortunately, I have the kind of memory where like I read, I read so much that I often don't remember what I've read, but mm-hmm. I, I did go through a Lovecraft phase where, where I read quite a bit of it. And then I was kind of done. Sure. <laughs> totally fair. The only reason I ask is Lovecraft has often cited that Dunsany mm-hmm. is, um, the, was the biggest influence on his writing. Interesting. And re- reading the Charwoman's Shadow, which um, came out probably like a decade before a lot of um, a decade or two before a lot of um, Lovecraft's kind of mythos works, I can really see it. You know, because here we've got this this magician who's trying to reach across these like infinite gulfs through space to deal with these like uh, strange entities that normal people don't understand, but he's able to do this through like dark rites, but we're also talking about like the coldness of space and traveling beyond that and colors that, um, that, that people have never seen before. There's a lot of like really juicy stuff there that like you really weren't seeing in other, and other things at the time that ended up inspiring a lot that came after it. That's super interesting. Excuse me. Cause it, particularly because it creates this really interesting thread, I think. So I just finished writing a book about fairy tales for a fairy, a fairy, fairy tale gaming book. Right. So I'm thinking a lot about fairy tales as I enter reading this. Um, and of course in fairy tales, like some of the lesser known tales, there are people who go to the moon and there are, there's all this kind of stuff about shadows. And so like, for me, I really clearly saw the, the pull from fairy tale into sort of this weird, dark magic, like the country beyond moons rising is almost straight out of, um, Beyond the Moon, Beyond the Sun, I think is the name of that short story. And so like, oh. so it's interesting to see that thread extend further into the future and see that, you know, that has carried on in interesting ways, too. That's really neat. Yeah. And and, and certainly I think Lovecraft, um, obviously his cosmic horror, but also his, the first half of his work was all the dreamland stuff, which mm-hmm. is very sort of fairy tale, dream logic. Um, and so that, that doesn't say any influence, I think, is even more clear there. Um, and... Uh, again, I think I, I think I'm very struck by is Dunsany's ability to describe light in all its various forms um, and, and colors that have no name yet, as you said. Um, you know the the various times of day, right? You know, from the pre-dawn to that sort of the blue sky, but when the sun's already set, but they don't really have a name for it, but you can still see your shadow. Um, I think that to describe something that's so ephemeral, but actually be able to make you be able to visualize it, I think is a real gift. Yeah, it's interesting because it particularly also reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've read The Book of M by Peng Shepard. It's this fantastic modern uh, magical realism story, which is all about the magic of shadows. Um, and so I had, I think I read that last year. And so this, of course, was making me think of of, of that too, because there's, all the, there's this whole idea of like, are shadow science? Are they magic? Like, how do they work? What's their importance? And there was so much of that in here too that I was just sort of drawing all those pieces together in really interesting ways. And I loved when Ramon Alonso is reunited with his shadow and then afterwards it said, hereafter they danced as equals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. right. I love that. Right. He's no longer, yeah, the shadow is no longer his servant. 
Right. It's very Peter Pan. <laughs> right, right. So what did you guys think of the central love story here? Meaning the Between Ramon Alonso and the really sexy shadow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so saddened that he was going to have to sacrifice his, <laughs> the great love of his life and make, make it turn into just this like hideous old crone. Yeah, you know, as a woman who's almost 50, I was like, oh, I have some words for you, good sir. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's it's interesting and complicated, right? Because she she clearly chooses him, right? Late, late, and that's important, right? There's there's some autonomy and there's some consent there, and, yeah. which is a really striking and different from, in a weird way, the other sort of, quote, romance, which is his sister and I guess the Duke, who didn't get to choose, right? right. She gave him a love potion that right. sort of almost killed him and then made him fall in love with her, which is like the worst lack of consent ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I mean, the fact that like, it's it's interesting because I think that the, it's written with an, in enough with enough careful language and attitude that you understand that he loves the charwoman e- even as she is, but not in like a romantic sense, yes. right? He cares for her. He has responsibility to her. He thinks of her like sort of as a parent. So that transition where suddenly she's this young girl who doesn't have any memory of, the, eventually doesn't have any memory of him helping her or doing any of those things. Uh, it's a little bit like, it's a little, it was a little bit hard for me to swallow sort of through that process. Um mm-hmm. Because he does like she's so different as a young person than she is as the person that he knew that I also didn't know like, how he fell in love with her. And I think this is a really common problem in romance things. You're like, okay, here's a romance. You two are in love, but like, why? Right, <laughs> like, right. why have you fallen in love? Because you're the both things? beautiful. Right? <laughs> 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 really, that's the only way to do it, right? right. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that was the point of the story. Like, the love story felt like the app. Like, like in fairy tales, the love story is the prize you win. Yeah. And that doesn't need to be explained, maybe. Sorry, I think I just stepped over you. No, no, I think I think that's right, and I think um, uh, again, one of our get, uh, the people in the virtual book club made the point that that he was willing to give this up, right? Because he was in love with the shadow, and he had no idea that the shadow would restore the charwoman to her youth and glory, right? And so, but he was still like he had, I'm committed to giving the the you know the charwoman her shadow back and then she can go and then you can go work at my father's castle and you only have to work you know at your own pace do one room a day if you want you know it's an honorable retirement you know right and i think another thing that was nice about at least my perspective of reading dunsany is it didn't really feel like dunsany was really experiencing any of these it just really felt like dunsany was doing kind of an exploration of youth versus wisdom mm-hmm. and this very felt very much felt like the impetuousness of youth the way that like you see a beautiful woman and now you think you're in love. Right, and, right. you know, he's, he sees this charwoman without a shadow. Now he must rescue her, even though he doesn't really know why he's doing any of this stuff other than just like, he's young and this is what right. you do. And, right, right. You know, we're like the wizard, like the, the magician, like he's not troubled by any of like these kind of mortal affairs. Like the, <laughs> the two characters couldn't be any more different. Right, right. But, Very true. But as you say, the relationships are important and probably the most important relationship is between Ramon Alonso and the magician himself, right? Because the magician himself wants a suitable apprentice so he can pass on all this knowledge that he's accumulated over the centuries, right? The I don't burden know why of his wisdom. That, right. I don't know why he would think that Roman, Ramon Alonso <laughs> would be the perfect choice for this, but, <laughs> you know, but uh, there's that. Uh, there is the interesting relationship between, I mean, all the different characters have different relationships with Father Joseph. So, you know, Mirandola is 
like maybe the closest peers she has in the scenes that she has are with Father Joseph because he's sort of got a wily man of the world attitude, although he's not, you know, he's basically benevolent, but he's, he's, and they never say that he's outright cynical, but he's oh, exposed <laughs> to everybody's sins. So he's just aware of all the sin in the world, you know? So, um, so certainly he has a certain, um, uh, I don't know, uh, worldliness to him that is maybe not present in some of the other characters. Sure. Um, uh, so I think that's an interesting relationship. And because of Mirandola being such a, uh, you know, again, such a, a planner, I think that's an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Um, and to the extent that Father Joseph also stands in for all the things that um, Ramon Alonso, I guess Ramon Alonso has three father figures, right? He has his actual father, he has Father Joseph, and he has the magician, right? And each mm-hmm. one of them is a different aspect of fatherhood, both good and bad, right, for Ramon. Well, and speaking of Father Joseph, and this can be a good way to segue over into the gaming conversation, one of the things that I've noticed again and again in the Appendix N is that there's basically no Appendix N route for the cleric. But that said, Father Joseph did some pretty clericky stuff in this. Yeah. Interesting. That moment where the, the he splashes the holy water on the shadow, and then the shadow the shadow just like runs runs away. That felt very clericky, like kind of a mm-hmm. banishment or a. Uh, a turning of undead kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, he kno- Father Joseph knows right away. Like he says something the first time Ramon Alonso comes to him. Like, did you? Wh- where's your shadow? Or like before he, there was any other possible way for him to know, which suggests that he's like had some experience that we are not aware of with right. the yes. dark arts, which is kind of interesting. Like, right. what did you do before, Father Joseph? <laughs> <laughs> Now, did anything about the charwoman's shadow feel particularly proto D and D to you? Hmm. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, I mean, obviously you have a wizard, right? But it's uh, you know, but and you do actually have you actually have two sword fights, so it's it's although it's more <laughs> like you think of it as sort of more uh, pastoral romantic fiction. There are actually two sword fights that actually have narrative consequences in the story. Sure, right? Um, and, and people and the the various sort of like men at arms also feel like, uh, you know, early D and D where you have your followers. Um, but I think there's less of a one-to-one correlation than say King of Elfland's daughter has or some of the other. Sure. Stuff, right? Like this does not feel like it's a D and D adventure, but it certainly has elements that are used in the game. You know, we have offensive magic and really just kind of like as an exploration of game designing a magic system, you know, specifically in the Charwoman's shadow, they talk about how, um, magical effects are weakened the further the caster is from you. So they're kind of talking specifically about spell range. Right, right. Um, he actually invokes the inverse square law in here. <laughs> I was kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so. Now, Shana, while you were reading this, um, as a game designer, is there anything that was in this that you're just like, ooh, I like that. I want to try to work that into a game somehow. I have, I have my... Can't, you guys can't see this on the podcast, but I do have my handy notebook full of notes of like, oh, this is cool. This is good. Um, so I thought, so so one of the things, just to go back for one second, that made me laugh was one of the things that did not come out of this book for gaming was distance traveled because Ramon Alonso travels a day and he is 25 miles from his house. That's how he always walked. <laughs> and, and that is so unrealistic. If you tried that with your GM, they'd be like, um, no. <laughs> like, unless you're a marathon runner, you cannot walk 25 miles in half a day or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and that made me laugh, but, but it was sort of delightful. I was like, well, maybe people walked faster and could, could go a lot longer than. Um. <laughs> it, was long, it was a long summer day. So you exactly. get a lot of time for Twilight. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> um, so I think, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm such a stealer of, like I said, phrases. So I have like all these phrases written down. Um, and then I'm, I'm, I'm just such a magpie. I'm a thief of like ideas. And so like, I loved this idea that he had this box of shadows because like shadows are this, are this thing that we think of as being uh, sort of both tangible and insubstantial in these really wonderful ways, right? They disappear, they arrive. Um, and, and so like all the ideas of shadows. And then there's this, there's this moment where the dog accepts him, even though he's got a screwed up shadow. Yes. And like that, like that moment of like how deeply he felt, how, how important it was for him to be, like both recognized and accepted after the choices that he made, like that idea of not necessarily redemption, but just like we've all made mistakes and having someone say, it's okay. You're still human. I thought it was just such a beautiful moment. So like I journaled about that for a little while and I was like, that's something that I would like to present players with the opportunity to have in Mm -hmm. a game because I think it's so magical and wonderful. Um, And it's, it's certainly something that we're struggling with in our lives, right? With Twitter and and the advent of the jump on culture and everything like that. So how do we, how do we make mistakes and still see and accept each other as humans? And what does that mean for us? Like, which is totally, which says a lot about how I make games. Like I didn't take any mechanical stuff or anything. I just took all these like little beautiful moments that I want to recreate. (laughs) Right. And in fact, every single character in this book makes a mistake, right? Except oh for possibly gosh. Father Joseph, because, you know, Mir- Mirandola gives the potion, which is possibly mismixed. We're not sure if it was supposed to work know. that way yeah. or not, right? I don't know what's happening with her. Right? Um, so, you know, the Duke is incredibly angry for a week, but maybe that's the way it's supposed to work, right? That, you know, um, and it's funny that you bring up the dog, as I completely had forgotten about that scene. And it's just so well written, that scene, because the dog oh, yeah. barks, barks like four times. And then it feels like it's done its duty. It barks four more times, but it decides not to howl because it likes it I likes Marmon Alonso, right? He's so <laughs> like he understands like dog psychology. Like how does he know this? You know how does he know? That's amazing. <laughs> well, Shauna, one of the things I would like to ask you is, as a co-author of Consent in Gaming, what how do you feel about the um, presence of love potions in <laughs> in gaming? <laughs> They're so tricky, right? Like, um. You know, because when you think about love potions and you start breaking down what is that, like, like where does, like, how much of what we do every day trying to attract a mate is sort of considered a love potion, right? And and for me, the problem is when the person no longer has a choice, mm-hmm. right? So, like, you can do anything you want to attract someone else and that's legitimate as long as they have the choice to say no or yes or whatever. But with a love potion, you, you know, I mean, you're you're giving someone something that says... You have no choice in who you love. And so that's like, oh, that's so bad and tricky. And I mean, it's sort of like mind control and and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, really, weirdly, we should think of her as the villain for doing that, right? And we should think of him as the villain for making it. And yet somehow in this story that he manages to make us not feel like they're villains. And I think that's a really interesting place is how do you... How do you create characters that are doing these sort of horrible, non-consensual things and still give you, the, as the reader, sympathy and empathy for them? And I think that that's, that's kind of masterful um, and also kind of squicky. Like, right, you're yeah. walking this line of, of both of these things. Um, right. We were just having this conversation as we were working on, on mind control and fantasy, some stuff that... And, you know, I mean, like, the bad guys all do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And... 
and is that interesting anymore? I guess is one of my questions, right? Mm-hmm. Like whether or not it's, it's okay. I think, you know, we sort of have clearly said, no, that's not okay, but it's okay for the bad guys to do. But like, really, is that, is that like, could you come up with something that's more interesting and less, you know, that gives the person on the other side more autonomy to sort of fight back and be their own person. And, and yeah, probably, I think that there are, there are better ways to do that and more interesting ways to do that. But I also think that this is of a time where probably nobody blinked about that. Oh yeah, of course not. How far we've come. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and obviously we have much more insidious ways of manipulating people now, just like you were oh talking about gosh. social media and, yeah. and, and to the extent like here, it's just really a few people. Whereas, you know, some of the platforms we have are millions of people being involved. And I think the interesting thing you talking about, whether Mirandola is the villain here, it's an interesting thing, right? Cause she's trying to get out of a situation where she has less agency by being betrothed to Golvaris, right? right? By then, by then getting the, giving the, you know, putting, giving the magic potion to the Duke. Now, Again, we don't really know, does the potion cause him to fall in love with her? Or is it just that he hates everybody else so much that <laughs> right. the only person that she can he can spend any time with is Mirandola? And then therefore, the, he is given the opportunity to sort of come naturally to love her. It's kind of unclear. And that's sort of, again, you say pretty masterful on Dunsany's part, mm-hmm. right? Because we never really see too much of the discussion of what goes on. We only hear her report back about how the Duke is feeling. We don't see too much of the time where they're just sitting there you know, in the Duke's room. True. And so um, that's a fine line to cast. And it is sort of her reclaiming some of her own agency, but in a sort of weird kind of, as you say, squicky way. <laughs> right. Right. Cause she really, she wanted the love potion to work. And we, you know, we think it's mismade yeah. and just got him sick instead of falling in love with her. So really he does have the choice, Yeah. but that wasn't her intention. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Her intention was not to give him a choice. Right. Well, and right. similarly with Ramon Alonso, I mean, he's fantasizing about as soon as he gets the ability to make gold from the magician, the first thing he's going to do is try to buy back his um, shadow from the magician and if the magician refuses, he's going to use that gold to hire an army to uh, tear down the castle, murder, uh, tear down the tower, murder the magician, and take the shadow back by force. So it's <laughs> like even our supposed like hero slash protagonist is also devising some pretty evil schemes. Right. right. But that's exactly a totally player character thing to do, though, right? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. okay, let's try to learn this spell. And if this spell doesn't work, then we'll bring the army in. Right. <laughs> just knock everything down. Right. right. Yeah, you can just see the conversation. No, let's learn the spell. No, let's just bring the army in. No, no, I can get this. I can learn the spell. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a table discussion right, right. there. And, and it's funny you bring this up because I think just a month ago, I mean, this will be dated by the time the podcast comes out. There was that uh, Unearthed Arcana sort of prototype uh, love domain cleric thing. And yes. there was a controversy online about that, about, again, lack of agency there and, you know, yeah. and mind control and charm and stuff like that. And, and, and I know they retracted it for good reason, but it's funny that they went there as their first instinct with what a love domain cleric would be as opposed to, you know, what other way would you define love, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Well, and it's interesting too, because of course our definition of love and romance and all that kind of stuff has changed so much, right? We, we now have this very sort of, you know, love is, is sort of this wide thing and it encompasses a lot of things and you can love lots of people and you have all this stuff. And like before it was sort of like love is, it doesn't actually really matter in these relationships, right? We're marrying for money or for my fields, as his father, their father would right, say. The three fields. Right. Oh my goodness, he's so in love with his fields. It's, right. The father's relationship to the fields is like his main relationship. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the central love story. <laughs> and it's even more traumatic that Golvera looks at the fields and like, yeah, they're okay. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. but, that's, that's like the love story of the book right there and nobody else wants them right. <laughs> now one thing i thought was really interesting is this idea of like esoteric costs you know you go to the you go to the wizard in the tower because you want something from the wizard but that wizard doesn't want gold that wizard doesn't want your treasure that wizard wants half of your eyesight or that wizard wants your shadow or that wizard wants your your hopes um, how do you feel about working in kind of these more esoteric costs into your games? I love it. I love it so much. I think that, you know, it, it's just so wonderful because, like, you know, if you talk about, like, what does money buy you, right? Money buys you the basics. And beyond that, money buys you freedom or time or, you know, the the desire to avoid things in your life. Right. And so you, and so especially now in today's world, I think, you know, Oh, give me $5. Okay. Magician, give me what I want. But like, if you're in a place where they're like, I want something that matters so deeply to that can't be replaced. You can't make more of it. You know, you can't, you can't steal it. You can't borrow it. it. Like, like that's just such a great crux moment for a character to have to decide. Mm-hmm. And I think that, particularly now that we, this is sort of weird, but like we live longer and we understand the ramifications of like losing our eyesight as we age or losing our memories as we age. Like I'm a huge fan of like taking memories as something, you know, for magic. Um, Mm. And, and so like, I think that 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 requires a more interesting dilemma on the player character or, or the NPC or whoever it is, than than anything that has to do with money, particularly because games are typically designed where you go and you can get money, right? Yeah, you might put your life in danger and you fight some things, but you know at the end you're going to come home with some treasure, but you're not coming home with extra eyesight or like, anything <laughs> like that. Um, so I love it. I'm a huge fan of that. Right, right. Do you think that um, systems, like traditional systems, D&D, maybe RuneQuest and those derivatives are not suited for that kind of gameplay, that we need more modern systems to deal with that? Or can it be done with more sort of trad systems? I think it can be done, but it sort of requires the table and the GM to sort of break the system a little bit, right? And and that's there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like one of the mm-hmm. great things about games is creativity. It, it, it brings the party to, you know, all this amazing creativity. But I also think on the other hand, there are you know, games, like we, you mentioned that I worked on Invisible Sun, and that is a game where everything you trade has very little to do with money. You know, it's all about emotion leaves and, you know, the things that you hold dear that you give up to gain things. And and that's all built into the game in a system systematic way. And so I think that, um, I think that as we move into the future of like, what's interesting to have at stake? That's the game. That's the question I always ask myself when I'm designing games is what's rare, what's at stake, you know, and, and like, how can I raise those stakes? And I think that when we start thinking about that, like money in games just doesn't have that element as much anymore. And so I think we'll see a lot more games and we we already are that are moving into those kinds of things. And then you even see games like cozy games, which are these small games where you're doing like really emotional things together in small, positive ways where, where like positive emotions are the exchange value. And that's just so lovely and, and really interesting. So I think that I think you can do it with games that aren't don't have that built in, but I think there are lots of games now that they give you the option to just sort of right out of the book do that. Yeah, right. right. I was just listening to a bunch of um, podcasts with um, Matt Finch of Swords and Wizardry fame and the old school primer. And something he hadn't discussed before was that the old school games, because of their by very virtue of their inelegance, they were actually more modular. So you could actually pull out subsystems without breaking the, the whole system and having it collapse in on itself. 
um, so that they're not optimized for any one thing, but that they can allow you to plug in stuff that they weren't originally designed to do. Whereas I find that maybe some of the more modern games are so powerful at evoking a specific sort of uh, maybe slightly narrower range of experience, but that they are not therefore as good at, you know, one day being slapstick comedy, one day doing deep romance, one day doing, um, you know, uh, existential horror. Um, so I wonder what your feeling is on whether there is better, well, I should say better, uh, your preference to sort of a more focused game design or whether sometimes a more inelegant but sort of open-ended design um, is uh, something that you would prefer to work with. That's uh, Wow, that's really interesting. It's not something I had thought about, but I really I like that idea. So I definitely want to mull that over. Um, I think that for me, I'm very narrative-driven and very character-driven. So my favorite games, the, the games that I like working on and that I like playing are games that allow basically allow my player to do anything, even if there's a huge cost. Like, So I really like games that allow me to sink deeply into a character and push that character into new and interesting directions. And I think that that can happen, like, because I'm coming from that sort of perspective, I think that can happen in a huge range of games. Um, and and for me, the, like, the games that I struggle with are the games that are um, sort of... Uh, delineated or, or tightened through like what I can, what my options are. Like I have to go to this dungeon and fight this thing is much less interesting to me than, you know, I have to, I have to find, you know, the love of my life through the series of experiences or whatever it is. And so I think that, um, I don't, I, I want to think about the way, the thing that you're asking and I probably would have an answer after some time, but mostly (laughs) I think, (laughs) mostly I think that I come to, to games from character perspectives, and so mm-hmm. sure. uh, those, that's where I lean. Right, right. That, well, I think that it's doesn't an all... answer your question at all. Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> I think it's. I think that's an ongoing dialogue in the game design world. But I think yes, it's interesting. Sure. And interesting, you know, whether there's a, a an underlying ethos that drives that, um, or you know, can we take stuff that you know was not meant to do this thing, but it's you know maybe a little, it's but because by lack of its uh, specialization, it becomes more versatile than things that are very, very, um, you know, optimized, but then can't do some of the other stuff we might want them to do in the same game experience. So I've got a different question for you. Um, now, that's so dangerous. I know, right? <laughs> you ready? Uh, so, you know, in the Charwoman's Shadow, our magician is somebody who's been locked away for centuries studying these old books to become what he is today. And we see that that trope a lot in fantasy fiction, you know, with Gandalf or with um, any time you've got your like Dumbledore with his long white beard, like going through books. And, you know, so the idea here is that like it really takes devoting most of your life and a very long period of time to really be able to harness great magics. But in most of our game systems, especially the leveled game systems, you could easily be a first level character at 21 years. Your character is 21 years old. And then by the time you're 24, you may have gone on so many adventures that you're now a 14th level wizard. So I'm curious, does, does kind of modern wizardry game mechanics kind of cheapen the idea of the wizard and the decades or centuries long quest for arcane power? 
That is such an interesting question. So I think there's a lot of things that are interesting. It's like games predicted the internet, right? They predicted how quickly we would be able to learn. And I mean the internet like back when it was still a learning mechanism and not what it has become today. (laughs) 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 Because like games are like, you know, oh, if you had the internet in four days to sit there, you could learn everything. And and now you're, you know, a super advanced wizard. But I also think it was, it had to do with the, at the time, like books were hard to come by, you know, reading wasn't something that everyone knew how to do. Like knowledge was a thing that was really revered. Hello. I miss those days. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and was, was a lifelong pursuit. Right. And, and those of us who still believe that, like know that like learning magic, isn't just like learning a spell i'm talking about this like this is real world magic but you know what i mean Um, it's not just learning a spell it's like understanding the implications of that spell and understanding the cost that it has to you and how it affects the world and like i think that i think that there's like i think that there's a disconnect if we think about what it really means to learn and grow as a human being and all of the effects that that learning and growth has on us and how it makes us different and the work that it takes to change just like a habit right i mean I I do a podcast about writing and like how the people that talk to me about how they can't find a way to sit down once a day for 10 minutes and write. I mean, they changing a simple habit like that is a lifelong pursuit of knowledge and growth and understanding ourselves and breaking down our psychology. And so like, but like, you know, learning the learning how to multiply takes five minutes. And so like, I think a lot of it depends on how we think about magic. Like if magic is just like, Oh, I learned how to make fire and now I shoot it that sure, you know, maybe that only takes a year to learn. Yeah. But like, I, I learned what the what fire is made of and how it works and what the effects of it has on the world and how it affects me to be able to, you know, spray fire in someone's eyes and watch them dot. Like, I mean, those are, that's real magic the way that it used to be written. And so it did take a long time because it wasn't just about the thing you could do. Mm-hmm, it was right, right. everything holistically around it. Right, right. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like I'm sitting around practicing magic. You know what I mean? Well, <laughs> it was in the real world. Right, right. Witch, witch, <laughs> burn her. Right, and, 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 <laughs> and I guess that ties into your essay, which I just read a little bit earlier, The Science as Magic, um, which you had written, what, three or four years back? Is that right? The uh, Is that me? Yeah, yeah. You're, you wrote an essay, Did right? Did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> Uh, at least it says he did. <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, I was just talking to someone about like uh, someone was asking me questions about the last book I wrote, and I could not remember the character, the main character's name. It's like once it's out, done, it's out of my head. Right, so I go. totally believe I wrote that. I don't remember. Right, I don't well, remember it, but right, tell well, me I said something smart. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, well, you know, it was like casting a D and D spell. Just you, you've forgotten. You have to rememorize it now. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Exactly. Well, one of the things you talked about was the implications of, you know, what's weirder, a box that lets you talk to people on the other side of the world or a machine that lets you instantly (laughs) travel to the other side of the world. Um, And, you know, is magic a technology or not? Right. uh, right. And in this case, I think that Lord Dunsany is not deliberately talking about magic as a technology in this book. Although if you dug under the hood deeply enough, you might find that it is. Or, but... um, but I don't know if this, you know, this is kind of farther afield from your point, Jeff, that you were making about age and the depiction of age. And I don't know how you would mechanize that to bring that back to the idea of the ancient wizard. Um, you know, other than maybe, again, if you were in a more story game situation, if you gave people sort of like more narrative tokens for characters being older, that would allow them to sort of have certain kinds of knowledge that a character that might nominally be more powerful, but doesn't have those, those, those knowledge tokens, um, whatever they might, whatever form they might take. Sure. You know, so then you might choose to play an older character. Um, 
certainly in Call of Cthulhu, you used to have a higher education stat if you played an older character. So that was a pretty big deal uh, because that determined a lot of your skills and stuff like that. So, you know, in trad D&D, you know, it's a little harder to, to depict that. But. Or with uh, old school traveler care gen, you know, you can right, right. you can you can risk adding another um, another career path to your character right. to potentially right. get some more skills. But you might end up right. dying in care gen. So you have to start right back from the beginning. <laughs> right, right, right. So, Shauna, uh, is there any kind of uh, one last thing you really wanted to chat about regarding Charwoman's Shadow before we wrap up? You know, I think for me, it was just a reminder that, like, as often happens when you say, this isn't for me, meaning in my case, sort of classic fantasy, uh, I was totally wrong, right? Like, I, I loved the language. And it, like I said, I liked the interaction between the characters. And it was really fun to sort of see <clears throat> the history of a lot of things that we take for granted now. And so, like, I, for me, it was just a reminder that, like, sometimes when I say, oh, I've tried that and that's not a thing that works for me, that I need to go back and revisit that and be like, no you know, really, really give it a shot again, reopen your mind to think about that. Cause I, I do think that, um, you know, with so much, with so much opportunity for like how we spend our time, I'm very, I'm very quick to be like, no, that one's not for me. Cause I've got all these other stuff. And, you know, <clears throat> I think sometimes the hardest thing or the thing that we think we're not going to appreciate is the thing that, I don't know, it, it, it it's, it's so worth it to do that hard work because there's great rewards. And mm-hmm. so I'm so glad that I had to read it <laughs> because, <laughs> <laughs> because it, I don't know, it was just a good experience and I don't think I would have read it in any other circumstance. So thank you for that. That's uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I would, I probably would not have read this had this not been a part of this project. And I'm really glad mm-hmm. that you agreed to do this with us. Right, right. <laughs> and I really appreciate it. It's made us slow down a little bit because everything is almost like, Oh, I need to know this thing instantly in this day and age. And it's mm-hmm. like, slow down, mull it over. Do I like this? Do I not like, no, I don't have to make an immediate judgment about anything I'm looking at. Yeah. Right. I think that's a pretty important. So, Shauna, do you have any projects that are going to be coming out soon or just recently came out that you would like to have our uh, listeners kind of be on the lookout for? Sure. I um, I just finished working on something called The Night Side, which is an Invisible Sun supplement that's all super dark, scary magic that comes in like a special bag so that the book doesn't infect your other books. Um, that was really fun. That will be out shortly. Cool. Uh, and, and then, as I mentioned, I'm also I just finished um, writing an RPG book about fairy tales. It's called We Are All Mad Here. Uh, and it's a fairy tale source book, but it also has a special setting called The Heartwood, which is uh, all about mental illness and um, neurodivergence and, and mental health and it, y- your characters all have have been touched in some way by these topics um, and so uh, that was a really interesting experience we had great sensitivity readers uh, I'm very excited for that to come out and that'll be out later this year um, and then I work on two projects that I can't talk about because <laughs> that's kind of my life right. um, but look for them eventually <laughs> perfect and if people perfect. want to follow you on social media or check you uh, check out your projects online what are the best places for them to do that uh, Monty Cook Games is a great one uh, shaunagermain.com is my main writing website and that's got more of my novels and my short fiction and my poems and that kind of stuff and then on Twitter I'm just shaunagermain also same as on Instagram um, so those are the good places Awesome. And Hoy, how can people best find us? Right. If you want to drop us a note, you can uh, write us at, at, at Appendix and Book Club. I'm sorry, Appendix and Book Club at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. Uh, we're also on Facebook, MeWe, and the various other social platforms. 
Uh, and Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes, so you can support us at uh, patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And our patrons are able to join us for our pre-show patron book clubs. And we want to thank Adam Stiers and Daniel Bishop for joining us earlier and having a fun little chat about the Charwoman Shadow with us prior to us recording this episode. We'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons, uh, Frank Maybe, Ethan Schoonover, Andy Action, Joseph, Nick Edwards, and William Corbett. Thank you so much for your support. And um, our next two episodes are going to be on Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan at the Earth's Core and Elsbrig DeCamp's Conan the Buccaneer. So, Shada, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Oh, so much fun. Yeah, this has been really fun. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.